Welcome to your next stop. I'm super excited to have my next guest. She has been on the TEDx stage and another one of my clubhouse friends, Marianne Alda. How are you? I'm fine, Juliet. Well, I'm fine now. (laughs) It's been a morning. It is. It's been a morning. And now we're here together. So that's great. And I cannot wait to hear. I've already listened to your TEDx speech. You just have such a energy and funness about you that I just know that this is going to be such a fun interview. So I first want you to tell us your quotes and then we'll, uh, I'll tell mine and then we'll get into your story. Okay. Well, since you've watched my TEDx tote, TEDx tote, TEDx talk, <laughs> I, that's an interesting, I combined talk with quote and I came up with tote. Totes. Okay. Look at that. <laughs> so if you listen to my TEDx talk, then you're familiar with this quote. And that is, The one that my daddy said to me from the time I was a very little girl, don't let anybody else's no stop your yes. I love that. And I love that your dad said that. What a special man. That's that's awesome. I love that. Okay, so mine is don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what you need and then go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And that's Dr. Howard Thurman. So I just I thought that was such a poignant quote because it really is. We all do for others, but when we really think about what we need and then deal with that and then go to the world, it just gives us such a better mindset and a better place to help and serve. Welcome to Your Next Stop. This is Juliet Hahn. I am a wife, mom, virtual coach, public speaker, and crazy obsessed dog lover. I am so honored to be able to take you into the life of someone that has followed a passion. Every week, I hope you are as inspired as I am. Welcome to Your Next Stop. Marianne, I cannot wait to you tell us your journey, where you've gotten, and just give it to us all. Take us down the journey. Okay. Well, first of all, let's talk about the fact that I do have a sense of humor. I lead with my sense of humor because I am a firm believer that a little bit of sugar, a little bit of sugar helps the medicine go down, you know, and people are open to difficult truths if you wrap them in a a warm fuzzy, which I, I am a hypnotherapist. And so that's one of the things I learned in hypnotherapy school, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. I am an actress. And I think of myself primarily as a storyteller. That's why I became an actress. As a kid, I had a vivid imagination. One of my favorite book series was Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie. I grew up in the Midwest and we would have these snowy days and I would just snuggle up and read my books and imagine myself out there on the prairie. Now that I'm older, I'm not that crazy about cold weather anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say now I'm the same. Oh my gosh. I used to, I I mean, I love the snow, but the cold weather and the winters. Oh yeah. I'm not, I'm not such a fan, but you know, such is life, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you adjust, but you can also move. <laughs> exactly. So that that's the plan. And I did live in California for 20 years. So I'm, I'm a little spoiled. So anyway, my big dream when I was growing up was 
to be on the Mickey Mouse Club. And at the time, Annette Funicello was their big star. I still remember the songs. Today is Tuesday, you know what I mean. We're gonna have a special guest. I mean, I, you know, I just loved a Mickey Mouse Club. And the thing about Annette Funicello is that she is Italian. So she has olive skin and she had curly black hair. And as a kid, you know, I'm black, I'm African-American. I mean, I did that ancestry thing and actually, my nationality is American, but ethnically it's Afro-Saxon because, oh, I, <laughs> because I am 40% Nigerian and 40% Eastern European, like Welsh, UK, Ireland there, and then a hodgepodge of a bunch of other stuff. But anyway, it all comes out that I kind of looked like Annette Funicello as a kid. And when I saw somebody on television who looked like me, I thought, I can do that. I want, I want to be that when I grow up. And so when I do motivational speaking, when I talk to, to young people, which I, I do with as much frequency as I can, I tell them that the secret of dreaming a big dream is that when you aim for the stars and you don't make it, you at least land on the moon, you know, and that's pretty good. And the synchronicity of this is that the Mickey Mouse Club used to come on right after Edge of Night. I think Edge of Night came on at four o'clock and then the Mickey Mouse Club came on at 4.30. So they were adjacent on television. So I aimed for the Mickey Mouse Club, but I got to be on the edge of night. And when you, I aimed for the stars, I got to the moon and the moon wasn't half bad. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. So in college, my parents were very practical. I'm 72. So I grew up in the 50s and came of age in the 60s, 70s. I'm the first generation to graduate college, the first actually in my family to graduate high school because my parents both grew up in the Jim Crow South. My dad is from Humboldt, Tennessee. My mom was from Greenville, Mississippi, and they met on the south side of Chicago, you know, and they had me. So being very practical, a lot of the women in my family went on to become school teachers. So that was the thing. You either become a school teacher or you become a nurse, something practical. So my big rebellion was to, I'm not going to be a teacher. So I majored in journalism, but I had a, con a heavy concentration in theater. So I did both things. So my first job out of college was working in the publicity department for People's Gas Company in Chicago. And our department motto was easy on the syrup, easy on the gas. Okay. I, so, I remember this, you know, if you are ever playing Trivial Pursuit, you would want me on your team because it I remember like all it. kinds of weird stuff. So I did that for a year. My boyfriend at the time lived in New York. He was my college sweetheart. We got married. I moved to New York. My first job in New York was for Burson Marsteller Public Relations. And my second job was at ABC TV. And I was a unit publicist for daytime television. So I love that. So you, you, had, to, you had some passions in there. Yeah, Yeah, I'm getting a little closer, I'm getting a little closer. And now, interestingly enough, and there's a there's a reason why I'm telling you all these things. Interestingly, no, enough, I love this. Please, the, yeah. the department motto at the network 
was you can sell shit if you put it in a pretty package and tie a bow around it. And the importance of that is that especially today, you know, there are a lot of people who have a lot of talent, but they hide it in a brown paper bag. And it's the people who might have less talent, but they put a lot of bells and whistles on it and they are going to get further ahead. So when I, again, when I coach young actors, I will tell them the importance of the whole accoutrement that goes along with with being an actor. It's not just enough to have talent. You have to put it in a pretty package. You have to know how to market yourself, how to sell yourself. And knowing that, having that early understanding of working in the business side, because it is, after all, show business and not show art. But having that business background, I think is the key to my longevity and career survival because I always look at what the industry wants, what they're buying now. Should I straighten my hair? Should I go natural? Am I going to be edgy? Am I going to be more Procter & Gamble? You know, whatever it is, I can mold my packaging. Now the product stays the same. Who I am, the authenticity, I don't change up who I am, but I might change the way I package it a little bit. And I think that that has stood me in good steed, which is why I've been able to, which is why I'm 72 and I still have a career. Where did that, (laughs) where did that come from? I lived in New York for a long time. So suddenly, (laughs) suddenly I'm in the Bronx. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also you look fantastic. I, I thought you I didn't know actually how I mean, we're on you guys know that we're on video, but you don't look 72. I think I have more wrinkles over here on my screen than you have on your screen. But Well, it's that melanin, honey. It's that melanin. You know, it's good. It blocks from the sun. And in case there's anyone listening, this is something that I did that I had no idea that was something positive for my skin. When my son was little and he had a diaper rash, his pediatrician said, put uh, zinc oxide on it, you know. So if I would get a little rash, I would put zinc oxide on it. And then sometimes I would just, you know, that's that white gloppy stuff. But if you put a little bit in your hands and you and you warm it up, you know, and you can spread it on your face. And if it's too much white stuff, you just kind of pat it down. And so I would do that. So kind of zinc oxide became my early moisturizer, but it's a sunblock. And zinc is a building block of collagen. All that time I was doing something good for my skin and I had no idea. I was just going to say, look at you also fast tracking it then. Oh my God, I love that. But I love what you said about staying authentic to who you are, but molding with the times, molding what is in right now. So I absolutely, I mean, I think that's such a great advice that you give to your clients. Stay tuned for a quick message from my sponsor. Hi, my name is Shari Hodes, and I'm the president of Aura Limited, a proud all-women-owned brand marketing and global sourcing agency. Simply put, we provide fashion-forward swag for any and all of your branding needs. Please visit us at www.auralimitedspelledout.com. Okay, so you were there. Tell us the next stuff. This is I love this. I love storytelling and I love hearing people's stories. It's like my favorite thing. Obviously, that's why I'm doing these podcasts. How <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get you know, you see that's the thing too. I think curiosity is a great thing. Curiosity will keep you vibrant and alive. And that's the thing about getting older. Sometimes people lose their curiosity. I am a curious person. I want to know everything about everything. And there's not enough time to learn everything about anything, but I'm going to try. That is so funny because I was literally just talking to someone about this podcast and they were saying, okay, so you don't do any research before. And I said, no. And they're like, well, how do you come up with the questions? I said, I'm just a natural 
like curious person. So when someone's talking, I just naturally ask questions. I my kids are the same way. And I love that. And I've always instilled that in my kids, like be curious, ask questions, because that's how you learn. I mean, my all my kids are that way. I, I'll have friends that be like, gosh, your kids ask so many questions <laughs> when they were younger. And I'd be like, yeah, so they would say I'm sending my kid to ask because I don't like to answer all the questions. Like, I love to answer questions. I love asking questions because it is how you learn. So I love that you said that there's so much like about you that you know, that sense of humor, you lead with your sense of humor. So do I the curiousness. This is just fun, fun. So when I left ABC, I was pregnant with my son. And while I was on maternity leave, back then there was, well, I I think there is backstage. There was a newspaper. I think it's online now, but backstage, they would have all the auditions. And there was an audition for a children's theater. And it was off-center theater in New York City. And that was my very first audition in New York. Now, this was 1974. The salary was 75 bucks a week and all you could beg in the street because we would do afternoon street theater throughout the different, like down the Wall Street area, uh, Midtown Manhattan. We would just do street theater off the side of a moving van. We pulled up the side of the stage and put up the bricks. And we did actually this noontime soap opera called Hope for Life. And my character was Liberation. Liberation, okay. It was, feminine, it was the 70s, okay? So I auditioned for this children's theater. And I mean, it was the children's theater slash sketch comedy troupe. We also did children's theater on Saturdays later during the winter months. But in the summertime, we would do the street theater. And I auditioned and I got the job. And I thought that was a sign. My very first audition in New York City. And it's a paying gig. And I remember that I made the decision then that I had to follow my passion and my purpose. Because when I was, I'm going to back up now a little bit. When I was in college, I had an internship, the very first internship in public relations, which I did at Monsanto in St. Louis. And I also did touring theater with the Southern Illinois University Touring Theater Company. And we did In White America and the Royal Cricket of Japan. And we toured the Midwest doing colleges and grammar schools. Grammar schools, we'd do the Royal Cricket of Japan and the colleges we would do in White America. And I remember that my counselor, and I was one of the young, I was the youngest person in the troupe because it was a graduate program, but they couldn't find enough. There were no black graduate students (laughs) in the theater program. And so one of my oral interpretation teacher suggested that I audition and I got in. And it's funny because they were all over 21 and they would have to sneak me into the bars and stuff like that because I couldn't hang out with anybody because (laughs) I was too young. I couldn't drink. I think in Wisconsin I could drink because I was 18, but I'm, I'm not much of a drinker. I mean, I can't. I, I was going to say, and, and you were old enough that your parents were like, okay, we trust that you're not going to make any bad decisions. And it was a great opportunity for you. So you kind of took it and ran. Not really. My parents didn't know anything. They just knew what I told them. <laughs> <laughs> they had been to college and they said, you know, sure, this is good. But well, all they knew was that I got all A's in theater. They were just happy that I got good grades. That's all they cared about. And that I could keep up my scholarship. That's all they cared about. But but my counselor said, you know, you're really good at this. You should continue to do it. And I bring that up because my overriding philosophy is that talent is what God gives to you. And what you do with it is your gift to God. And I felt that by not pursuing my talent as an actress, 
that I was betraying God in some way. And so when I auditioned for this children's theater company, I mean, for the Op Center Theater Company, and I got the job, I thought, okay, God has forgiven me <laughs> for betraying <laughs> him or her. God has forgiven me. I'm Catholic, so... You know, right. So, I'm Catholic, so I hear you. Yeah. Okay, you understand. Sister Mary Sledgehammer, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Okay. For you Protestants out there, I'm sorry. Google it. Right. <laughs> but so I took this as a sign and I thought I will not betray my talent. And no matter how hard it gets, I'm going to hang in there. And believe me, there were some hard times, but I hung in there. And the interesting thing is that seven years later, I was back at ABC because I had auditioned for the role of Dee Dee Bannister on Edge of Night, which is an ABC soap opera. And when I went under contract, I went back there and the woman, I won't name her, I remember her name, but I won't name her. The ABC publicity department was kind of like a newsroom. So there were nine desks and they were stacked three in a row and three behind each other. So it was an open situation. And the woman who was now doing the daytime TV beat, you know, who had my old job, used to sit behind me. And when I came in and she, it was now her job to interview me and do my bio, she said, you want to write your bio? Cause you're good at it. And I, I said, you can write it, but I know what questions to ask me. <laughs> so she, she wrote the bio. And when she finished, she said to me, wow, you've really done something with your life. And that touched my heart because I felt so badly for her because I thought, do you not feel that you've done something with yours? And I think that's important for everyone to follow your passion and your purpose so you won't regret it at the end. And I think another thing that was important to me is negotiations and contracts, but not business contracts. I mean, the contracts that you make with inside your relationships. When my husband and I got married, he married a working woman. And I made up my mind that I was going to hold up my end of that contract. So if I was going to be an actress, I was going to be a working actress who made money. And I think a lot of times creative people, you know, that whole thing about the starving artist, that's a bunch of crap. It doesn't have to be either or. It can, in fact, be yes and if you determine it will be that way. And back in the 70s, you know, that was a great rich time for theater, Broadway and off, off Broadway and way the hell off Broadway. And I did a lot of that and it made no, it, you made no money. But there were a lot of theater artists who were, you know, having to do temp work and stuff like that during the day or 10 bar and stuff like that. And I looked at commercials and I thought, well, that's where the money is. So I auditioned for a ton of TV commercials and I booked a lot of them. And for a while, oh God, I did this one commercial for concentrated all detergent. And my big line in that was, greasy dirt is a nightmare. And I remember getting a taxi cab one day and the driver looks at me in the rear. He says, you're greasy dirt, aren't you? And I thought, oh God. Okay. Yeah. I guess that's my big claim to fame. I'm greasy dirt. But a lot of the people who did commercials were a lot of models and stuff like that. And you know, the theater actors kind of poo-pooed the models because they kind of I guess they felt they were betraying their craft, their art. And I thought, well, that's a bunch of crap, you know, because at least I'm on camera, I'm working as an actor, and I'm making a lot of money. That's crazy. And eventually it kind of changed. But in the 70s, it was kind of like, you are either bohemian or you weren't. 
And I have a, the heart of a bohemian, but I have that practicality of a capitalist. Okay? <laughs> Fair enough. So you know who you are. And that's what's so important. I think people need to know who they are and just go with it. You didn't apologize for things that maybe, oh, the other actors were like, well, why are you doing that? You're like, because this is what I want. This is a goal of mine. I love that you followed both sides of your passion and did that in the 70s. So good for you. Yeah, I think it's really important. The thing about it is that most people do know who they are, but sometimes they run from it. You sometimes you know, but you don't want to know because that means you have decisions to make. And sometimes it's easier to kind of go to your default mechanism of, I don't, you know, but when you don't make a choice, that's a choice. So I say, go for it, which I guess I'll do a little, you know, some bullet points on my career highlights here, and then I'll go into what I'm doing now. So you may have seen me on the edge of night playing Dee Dee Bannister or on Sunset Beach where I played what was my character's name? Ellen Hart? Was it Ellen Hart? I, I played Sherry Somm's mother. I had, you wouldn't have recognized me because I had Martin syndrome, which Soap Opera Weekly said was the best bad storyline of 1998. It was, you know, it, when the show went off, the, they sent me to an institution. My, I had to spend three hours every day when they put this latex crap all over my face that, so that I looked like I had some sort of kind of leprosy, deformity, kind of crazy stuff. And, and when the show got canceled, I hadn't been on the show for several months and they decided to bring me back. And you can see this online on YouTube. Sherry Thom opens the door and she says, Mom, you're cured. And I go, it was a miracle. <laughs> Because I came back because she was getting married to Jason George, who's now on Station 19, and he was playing her love interest. So he had come and found me and found a, a doctor to help cure me and as a surprise wedding present, brought me home to see my daughter. I mean, God, it was a soap opera after all. And then when Edge of Night went off the air and I moved to California, one of my first big roles was I played opposite O.J. Simpson for three seasons on the HBO series First in Ten. And yeah, I have stories about that, but you're going to have to buy the book when I write the book. Yeah, I was going to say, I, yeah, you definitely have to write a book on that one. And uh, and the, then when they did White Ford Bronco, it was the same production company when they did that story of his life. And stunt casting, they hired me to play his mother. Again, they did a lot of makeup to age me, but I had a lot of input because during our downtime, he told me a lot of stories about his mother. So I kind of knew I used that information to play her. Then a lot of people know me from Designing Women. I recurred as Anthony's yuppie from hell girlfriend, Lita Ford, who was always, I wait for the line, waiting in the Beamer. And it's funny because his, God bless me, Shaq Taylor, who passed a couple years ago from colon cancer, but his wife, Bianca Ferguson, had been on General Hospital at the same time I was on Edge of Night, both ABC shows. And I also, Meshach and I also co-starred in what has now become a urban cult comedy classic, uh, class act, playing the parents of the, you know, the rapper's kid and play. Loretta Devine played Play's mother and Meshach and I played kids' parents. And it's funny, I ran into Bianca at, a, at an audition a couple years after that. And she said, girl, you're in bed with my husband more than I am. So, I mean, she was kidding. But, you know, we had a couple of roll around scenes in the movie. But uh, so there's that. I 
starred opposite Red Fox and Del Reese on the CBS series The Royal Family. And that was fun. There'll be stories about that in the book as well. Yeah, I was going to say, this book is going to be fascinating. And the little girl, and this is, it was a, a heartbreaking summer with all of the social unrest and things that were going on. But really, what really affected me was that the little girl who played my four-year-old daughter at the time was Naya Rivera. Oh, yeah. And boy, it was a beautiful family. And she was just a beautiful, bright, golden light. And the only thing that I can think of is that she is now up in heaven with Red and Della. And they're looking out for right. her. Um, yeah, that was a sad story. Yeah, yeah. But the point, as long as we're going to say that, you know, because that was a sad story. But if we can take a lesson from that, is that you never know when it's your time to go. So don't say, and it's funny, I had a, a realization. I was in New York and, you know, strong work ethic built into me, instilled into me by my parents and Catholic school. I always felt that I would sacrifice in the present for the future. You know, sometimes you got to suck it up in the present for future gain. And I was, and I think I just turned 65 and I thought, Mary Ann, this is your future. <laughs> you <know? laughs> it's like, what are you going to put off? And I started treating myself better just in terms of self-love and self-care and being indulgent in, in more things that at another time I might've thought, well, that's frivolous. And I thought, oh, hell no, I'm going to do it now. And I think that's another important thing too. And when I turned 50, I'd had a great, great career up until my 50s. Then the casting directors just stopped calling, which I talk about in my TED Talk. And I became a hypnotherapist because actors have a natural curiosity about motivation and the human behavior. And when I was working with clients, a lot of the women were going through midlife depression. And I realized that as a culture, we've been hypnotized into believing that women lose value and social and sexual currency as we get older. And I realized that my job was to dehypnotize them, but being suggestible, which most actors are, because that's how we are able to, you know, create all of these different characters. The suggestions I gave to my clients went into my subconscious mind and I realized, no, damn it, I'm going to pursue the career that I love. And I started writing and doing solo shows. My very first solo show was at the school auditorium where I had trained as a hypnotherapist, the Hypnotis, Hypnosis Motivation Institute in Tarzana. And my first solo show was snap out of it. You've only been hypnotized into believing you're over the hill. I love that. Yeah. So from that point, it's sort of become my mission, my passion, my purpose to change the paradigm on women and aging. So that would keep, that's what keeps me going right now. And I, my, if my website is agingshamelessly.com and on Instagram, you can find me at Marianne Alda underscore aging shamelessly on Twitter. I'm Marianne Alda aging shamelessly. And you know, they say age gracefully age. What? No, we have so much shame. I mean, yes, you can, but the core, the deep center of that is that there is so much shame in our culture, especially with women, about aging, about getting older. And sometimes we women do it to ourselves and we internalize it. You know, like when we don't tell our age or it's like if we put it out there, we will be judged. But we're judging ourselves first. I was just having this conversation with someone that was like, oh, what, you know, 40s 
what is this about? And I'm like, you know what? I am in my late 40s. My kids will tell me, Ma, you're in your late 40s. I'm like, I don't know when that happens. But guess what? I feel like I'm 20. And I am in right now, I have so much clarity. And not that I always haven't, I've always had clarity because I've always done what, you know, what my passion, my heart, I'm a confident person. But I feel like in my 40s, late 40s, I am even clearer. Like, okay, you know what? This is what I want to do. I'm just going to go get it. And I don't think twice about things. And even if I did it a little bit, I do find that as some women, not all, because what you're saying is correct. There's a lot of women that they don't talk about their age. I'm like, why not? I'm 47 and I'm proud of it. I have a hot body. I have a hot mind and I am, you know, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here to, to, to make a mark. And guess what? The older I get, the more knowledge I have and the better I'm getting. So I love that you just said that. Uh, I do want to ask you and stop you. I want to find out. So what was your favorite role that you played? Just to go back, and then I want you to continue with the, you know, aging shamelessly. I would have to say Dee Dee Bannister on Edge of Night. I mean, that was, I loved that character. I have a fondness in my heart for her. And at the time, I was cast in 1981. And at the time, there were not a lot of Black people on television. And I remember being in a little coffee shop on the Upper West Side, right across the street from uh, Lincoln Center, because on Sundays, Lincoln Center would have church services, unity and religious science. And they were at Avery Fisher Hall or Alice Tully Hall. And I would go to a service and then I would go to a little coffee shop across the street. And I remember I was there one day. I think I'd been on the show maybe about six months. And I know she was tiny because I'm sitting down. She was still not that much taller than me when I was sitting down, but she was an elderly black woman. She was moving kind of slow. I had noticed her in the coffee shop and she was kind of looking at me and, you know, and I thought, well, maybe she knows me from the show. I, you know, I was just getting used to people recognizing me. She was kind of checking me out and I guess she was thinking, should she come up to me or not? And I, she decided that she did. She came up to me. She put her hand on my hand and she said, oh baby, it's so good to see you on that show. Oh, I love that. And it just, you know, it filled my heart with joy because this character was playing a, a, a black professional woman, strong, and we weren't seeing a lot of that. And I was just, you know, so yeah, I'm really, really proud of Dee Dee. And right now the show is having a big resurgence on, on Facebook. There are a lot of, after the show went off the air, it was on the last three years were replayed on USA Cable and a lot of fans VCR'd the show, exchanged VCR, they put the clips up on YouTube. And now there are people who are fans of the show who weren't even born when it went off the air. That must have made you feel proud, like proud of what you're doing, proud of all the avenues that got you to where you were to play Dee Dee. And I just I, I love that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it was, you know, it's one of those because what does that say? Into each life some rain must fall. But those moments like that, you know, those are your umbrella moments when you when you know, then you go like, okay, that's what keeps you moving forward. So I would have to say Didi, because I'm still to this day, I will be doing a live performance. And people will come up to me and they will tell me, I remember you. I used to come home from school and watch you on edge of night with my grandmother. And I would say, Oh, how's your grandmother? Oh, she's been gone now for 
20 years. But yeah, so I'm very fond of that role. And I would say the royal family was so much fun getting a chance to create this warm, fun black family, which would have still been on the air had not Red Fox died. So and I would say one of my top three, which is the one I'm doing right now, I created this performance art character of adult sex ed evangelist and mojo motivator, Dr. Ginger. Dr. Ginger. Dr. Ginger. (laughs) And I have a solo show built around her. And the title of my solo show is Getting Old as a Bitch, But I'm Going to Wrestle That Bitch to the Ground. (laughs) I love it. And I did the show at the 2019 National Black Theater Festival in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It attracts about 60,000 people. It's every other year. It attracts 60,000 people during this week of theater. And there's theater from all over the country and even all over the world. They've brought in theater companies from South Africa and from the UK. And when I did that show, it broke a 30-year box office record for the theater. And that is because, and this is what I say, Hollywood, if you're listening, there is a hunger for older women to see themselves portrayed as vibrant and vital. And yes, sexy, because that's who we are. We're not aging like our mothers did. We're staying vibrant and curious longer, and we're living longer. But somehow or other, it's starting to change a little bit, but not as rapidly as it should be, probably because Hollywood is still primarily a white male patriarchy. And they think that they know how women should be. Of course, those guys are all married to women 30, 20 and 30 years younger. So that's how they view the world. And I know like last week, there was a movie that came out starring Jean Smart, who I got a chance to work with on Designing Women, lovely actress. And her love interest, she's 69. Her love interest is William Shatner, who's 89. Well, you know, it does happen in life, but that's not a movie I particularly want to go to see. What what audience? Now, this is my dream casting. Tony Danza is also 69. Now, Tony Danza with Gene Smart rolling around in the hay? That's a movie that I would go see. So again, this is a statistic that I quote in my TED Talk. According to a Federal Reserve survey on consumer finances, women over the age of 50 can own 75% of the wealth in the United States. So why is Hollywood leaving so much money on the table? Right. And I actually rewound that twice because I was like, wait, I need to hear that again. I need to hear that again. I love that point of your TED Talk. That's brilliant. Can you repeat that again? 75%, according to a 2017 Federal Reserve Survey on Consumer Finances. And you can Google it because that's how I found it. (laughs) 75% of the wealth in this country is owned by women over the age of 50, you know? And so it's like, you want to get into my pocketbook? Tell my story. You know, if you build it, we will come and see it. And I have firsthand knowledge of it because all of these women came to see my show. I broke a box office record. The show got picked up by the Billie Holiday Theater in New York. And it it was the last show that they did before the pandemic because I did it in February of 2020. And again, it's sold out. And I hang around afterwards because women want to talk to me. They all want to tell me how I told their story. You know, were you a fly on the wall during my divorce? I mean, they, you know, they, they want to tell their stories. We 
women especially are very community. We're village oriented. You know, we want to get together with our sisters. We want to do lunch. We want to. And this was an opportunity for them to find someone that they relate to because they're not seeing it in film and television. So I think, you know, so my big dream are you listening, Hollywood? <laughs> is to <laughs> yeah, is, tell us. Is to I I would like to do my show. I mean, doing it live is great, but if I do it on Netflix or HBO, you know, like Eve Ensler did with the Vagina Monologues, that would be. I'm, I'm saying, you know, people would watch it. And because the show itself is a series of little stories and vignettes and monologues, it would make a great anthology series because I could tell a little story and then they could do the episode playing out that story with different actresses. So, you know, Oprah, Reese Witherspoon, I love if you're it. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> But (laughs) I do this because I love doing it. And I look at acting as my ministry. You know, I never became an actress to be like, look at me, look at me to show off. I don't care about that. What I do care about is communicating, entertaining, enlightening, lifting someone's heart, lifting someone's spirits, getting them to think, getting them to look at things differently. And in that respect, it is my ministry. And as I tell the young actors that I coach, being an actor is a service industry. You are first in service to your audience. You're in service to the writer to tell his story well, and you're in service to the producer who's paying for it. So you are a service provider. No, but I love that. You have so much knowledge. And so can you shout out your social medias again so people know where to find you? And then are you doing, when theater comes back, are you going to be back doing your one-man show? I may be back at the National Black Theater Festival, but I won't be doing my solo show this year. I'm alternating. I have a, a little gang of female comics and we're, we're called Funny Colored Women because we're funny colored women and we're funny and we're colored and we're funny. And so I'm hopefully if they have the festival again, we will be there in August doing that. And I am working on turning my solo show into a book because I, you know, putting those stories together. So I'm working on that. I have a bunch of things that are in my laptop that are, you know, on my hard drive that I'm working on. It's several different things that I'm I'm working on that I want to get out. But right now I am really working on my social media and kind of amping that up a little bit and telling my stories there. I just started on Instagram on Sundays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'm doing programming on Instagram. This past Sunday, I did my first Sunday Night Live. And since I'm trained as a hypnotherapist, I do a little guided imagery and breathing exercises to sort of set the tone for the week. You know, just 15 or 20 minutes, I do that live. And on Wednesdays, I do Wacky Wednesday. And on Wacky Wednesdays, I will put up little comedy sketches that I do with my assistant, Gabby. We do Gabby and Nana, you know, because she asks me questions about life. And then there's Gabby and Gabby and Nana. And then there's Gabby and Big Nana, who is her great grandmother. And Big Nana says, no, baby, I am not Big Nana anymore. I have lost 35 pounds during the COVID. So Mildred is your Nana. She's your grandmother. And I'm your great grandmother. So I'm your Nana. And so it's Gabby and Nana. Oh, I love it. Gabby and Nana. And on Fridays, Fridays, it's Flashback Friday. So I will put up little clips from Edge of Night or from 
designing women, any of the little things that I've done previously, I will put up a little video. That's perfect. So tell us where they can find you so they can give you a follow and give you some support over in your social media. Okay, so you can find me on Instagram at Marianne Alda underscore aging shamelessly on Twitter at Marianne Alda on Facebook at Marianne Alda. And these days, I'm also on Clubhouse. And I have my own club on Clubhouse, Aging Shamelessly. So come on over to Clubhouse. If you're on Clubhouse, you know, follow me, join me on Clubhouse. I'm always doing rooms about, you know, with women over 50. And I realize now that when I go into these midlife rooms, I've kind of matriculated midlife at 72. And a lot of times I feel like I'm an imposter because people think I'm younger than I am. So my next thing is I'm going to let my hair go gray because I've stopped coloring it. So you can watch me go gray on Instagram too, because I'm going to be posting pictures as I let my hair grow out. So that's kind of fun. And I got my second shot. So who knows where I'm going to turn up? I might be anywhere now since I, since I've been inoculated. So Marianne is M-A-R-I-A-N-N and Alda is capital A, small a. L-D-A. And so that's where you guys can find her. At the end of every episode, I'm asking every guest, what does crazy town mean to you? You know, I don't even need a sentence. I just need a word. Life. Yes. Life. Life. I love it. That is perfect. So that's what I tell. So crazy town to me is loving. It's energy. It's family. It's just a life. It is exactly that. And that's what I love. My biggest thing in life is I don't ever want to be bored. I love energy. I love creating. I love just things moving and just like just all of those moving parts. I love crazy town. And so that is what um, is close to my heart. So Marianne, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and telling your incredible story. I love learning all of this because guys, I did not know a lot of this. And this is what's like, my mouth is like wide open, like a kid listening to stories. And that's what I just love. So guys, if you like what you hear, please share, rate and review. Every week, we are listening to another woman share her journey and share her passion. And we just hope that you guys are sitting there thinking, you know what, if they can do it, we can too. So join us next week for the next episode of Your Next Stop with the Love What You Do series. Marianne, thank you again so much. And I I just wish you all the best. And I'm going to follow you in the graying hair and all that you do. because I just (laughs) find you fascinating. Well, thank you so much. And if you need a little inspiration in between your visits to Crazy Town, check out my TEDx talk at ageismisabullytedx.com. It has its own URL, ageismisabullytedx.com. TEDx.com. And we will have all of this in the show notes. So you guys, if you're confused, like we and in the social media posts, this will all be there. So you can click on it easily. So again, Marianne, thank you so much. And um, we'll see you soon. Can't wait to follow your journey. Thank you. This has been fun. 